1: Welcome to The Daugherty Gang, a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios. The Daugherty Gang is the true story of three siblings, 29-year-old Lee Grace. I'm the oldest.
3: We have a very, very loving family. Our family is very accepting. If you make a mistake, our family will shoot you out and they will quickly open their arms.
1: 26-year-old Dylan... I wish
5: it had not happened
1: the way that it did. I wish that I
6: had never been put in that position. And obviously if I could go back, I would
1: change a lot. And 21-year-old Ryan.
6: I'm not good at covering my tracks. I'm not good at lying. I'm not good at being a cheater. I leave a wake behind me like a mile wide.
1: The three went on an eight-day 15-state crime spree in 2011 that rocked the country.
6: They liked the notoriety. They
1: liked the fact that they
6: were on the run. They liked that they were getting national attention. That just played into
4: the whole, you
1: know, Bonnie and
4: Clyde. They went
1: from wielding an AK-47 while trying to outrun police in Florida.
4: The police tried to pull the siblings over for speeding, but instead, officers say, the Doherty's pulled out a gun, firing some 20 shots.
1: To robbing a bank in Georgia.
4: What do you get out of it? You get federal charges, you get
5: the FBI chasing you, and you're gonna get your picture taken. To
1: leading police on a high-speed car chase across Colorado, ending in a shower of bullets. But that's not where the story begins.
5: It's 10 years. This week coming up is 10 years. And that means we've done 30 years of prison.
1: This is The Dockerty Gang. Episode 1. We can't change the past. Not yet. I'm Courtney Armstrong, a crime producer at KT Studios with Stephanie Lidecker. We've been working with producer Beth Greenwald and The Dockery Gang for months now. The three siblings have agreed to tell their story for the very first time, each from separate prisons. Lee Grace Doherty is at Federal Corrections Institute, Aliceville, in Alabama. Ryan is in the United States Penitentiary, Tucson, in Arizona. And Dylan is at the Federal Corrections Institute in Bennonsville, South Carolina. This call is from a federal prison. The last
5: time I spoke to my dad, I don't know if you ever talked to anybody on their deathbed or had anybody that, you know, ask you to do something while they're dying, I guess. But it, it definitely weighed on me, you know. It was something that I really, later on, I took to heart. He didn't say, you know, respect your mom or do good in school or be nice to your sisters or anything like that. He told me he, he, the last thing that I remember him telling me was look out for your little brother. I don't know if he knew him was going to be right there soon, but um, he died about four hours after that.
1: That's older brother Dylan Dougherty. He was just 12 years old when he made a promise to his father on his deathbed that he would take care of his little brother. It would change the course of Dylan's entire life. Here he is speaking with Beth Greenwald. Family always seems to be the most important thing to all of you guys. Is it because you lost your dad? Or was it just the way that you were raised?
5: For my dad, you know, family was everything. And uh, that's definitely where I got those ethos from, is from him. You know, family trumps all. No matter what happens, your family's always there.
1: Do you think things would have been any different if your, if your dad hadn't passed?
5: You know, that's a big question. But yeah, undoubtedly, I think things would be a lot different if my father had passed away.
1: Their story was covered in the national media, and it made us want to know more.
4: This manhunt has been going on for more than a week.
3: Armed, dangerous, and all in the same family.
4: That led
1: to a 20-mile-long chase at speeds of over 100 miles an hour. Are they three golden-hearted siblings willing to risk everything for each other? Or were they just looking for notoriety?
3: My brother's gonna be on the run. I'm gonna be on the run because I'm on probation, and I burned all my bridges. It's a really strange feeling to be untethered. You don't have anything that means anything to you anymore. You've lost everything that matters.
6: You can't go self-surrender, like, doesn't matter. You're still gonna get the same amount of time you're gonna get whether or not you keep going from there. A
1: feature film based on the cross-country crime spree is set to be released later this year. Here's the movie's writer, director, and producer, Sean McEwen, who's known the siblings intimately for eight years.
5: The Doherty's grew up in a small house in Lacoochie, Florida, located about 50 miles outside of Disney. Mom Barbara was a nurse, and dad, known as Doc, worked in construction. They had five kids in seven years. Lee Grace, Dylan, Devin, Aaron, and Ryan. Growing up, the key lesson they instilled on their kids was family
6: first. And loyalty is everything.
1: Youngest Doherty Ryan talks about their mother.
6: My mom went crabbing and fishing with me. My mom took me places. My mom did shit with me. My mom cared and loved for me. My mom tried real hard, but we were just really willful kids. Like, I'm going to do what I want. My mom was always a worker in the family. Like, my father did construction and demolition and stuff, but... Honestly, I think that my mom's pay outclassed his and my father was uh, able to kind of be like more of a stay-at-home father with us kids, which was a blessing.
1: Here's oldest sister, Lee Grace. Us
3: kids, we were not the best of children. We were really bad. We fought, you know, we had behavior problems in school. If we did get in trouble, you know, sometimes even my dad would laugh it off. So we were raised strict, but not maybe as strict as other kids. Ryan's always been the baby of the family. You know, when you grow up as the youngest child, me and Ryan have seven years, age different. He was the type of kid that everybody just gravitated toward him. He was like the golden child in our family. He was easy to love, and he was just so easygoing. If we laughed at a joke, he laughed. He just wanted to be like the big kids. You know, we could be hungry. We could be spending our last 99 cents on a hamburger, and he would split it with me. Everything with Ryan is 50-50. He wants to be able to share things. He's so generous. Dylan was not afraid of anything. He was always there to protect us. Even at a young age, I always looked at Dylan like he had this like hero complex. He always wanted to save somebody. Even as we were adults, it was always like, I knew I could do whatever I wanted because I knew that Dylan was there to protect me. You know, I could say whatever I wanted. I could fight with anybody. And my brother was always going to back me up. You know, he was like my, my protector, even though he's two years younger than me. I looked at him as my equal.
1: Here's Dylan. When he was a child, his father wanted the best for him and felt he'd have a few more opportunities living with his aunt and uncle while still staying close to his siblings. Dylan was legally adopted by his aunt and uncle, who he refers to as stepmom and stepdad.
5: I would say definitely a a good older brother. I just imparted all the the wisdom that I received from our father and, and from my stepdad, even my grandfather. My mom had five kids and seven years, so there's not a whole lot of spacing in between there, So we were all relatively close to the same age. I think that was kind of cool growing up. We were all kind of at the same point in life together. So while the Dockleys had fun and leaned on each other during their childhood, things were tough. There wasn't a lot of money, and things got even tougher once dad died. The siblings were young. Lee Grace was 14, Dylan was 12, and Ryan just seven years old. So it was hard on the kids and possibly even harder on mom, Barbara.
1: The death of father William Doherty, known as Doc, was tough on everyone, especially mom Barbara. She was left with five kids to raise on her own. So
3: my dad was very young. He was only 41 years old. My mom was left with all of us kids. Everything fell to my mom. All the discipline, all the finances, and it was very difficult for her, you know, because my dad was the love of her life, her soulmate. So she was going through losing her love and then also the father of her children. And that made it really, really difficult because my mom really had nobody to turn to. Her family was very distant with her, so they weren't 100% with my mom. You know, nobody had my mom's back at that point. She was 100% by herself. She did everything on her own. She always said the same thing. Your father is my best friend. I cannot live without him. So I think that was a point where my mom realized the person that she loves most of the world has passed away and I think it really, really affected her. You know, I think even more than she than she put out there, because she was just struggling, she had nobody to turn to.
1: At this point, everyone was doing the best they could. Older brother Dylan, the one adopted by his aunt and uncle, had his sights set high and was on the straight and narrow.
5: When I went to ninth grade, my mom started to homeschool me. I did homeschooling for about a year and then uh, enrolled in a community college. You know, I went to school for a few semesters and then I decided that that really wasn't what I wanted to do. I started working young. I got into construction and started making money and doing a grown man's job when I was 16, and I was making a grown man's paycheck at 16 and was living at my parents' house, so I had plenty of money to spend.
1: Lee Grace was living a rougher life, couch surfing at various friends' places, often with her younger sister, Erin.
3: We were like gypsies. We were from here to here to here. You know, we moved so much. I probably lived in about 20 different places, so there wasn't really one address that I was using. I was just kind of going, you know by the seat of my pants, and my sister would be there with me. Aaron and I were going from family friends to our boyfriend's apartment. We were 14 and 15. That was a direct result of my dad, passing.
1: It was right after her dad died when Lee Grace went off on her own with her sister. Things were tough at home, her relationship with mom was volatile, and the only way Lee Grace could deal with grief and guilt was to get out of the house.
3: I wasn't dealing with my dad's death very well. She wasn't holding up her end of the bargain, and I always I felt so much blame and so much guilt for my dad dying because I was the oldest child. And heart attacks are caused by stress, and you kids stressed your dad out. And now he's dead, and what are we gonna do? We don't have any money. Dad didn't leave a will. We didn't have life insurance, so it was like you know you're 14 years old. You're worried about getting your driver's license and going to dances and proms, and now I got to worry about my siblings and my mom.
1: This chaotic living situation led Lee Grace to drugs, stripping, and never holding down jobs for long.
3: I never was able to stay in the same position for any amount of time because when you're in that phase of your addiction, it's very hard to get up in the morning. You're not supposed to be working when you're hungover or you're coming off a bad high or you're coming off a bender. So basically I explained my situation to some of the people that I work with and they basically said, We understand, thank you for telling us, but you need to go home and come back in a year when you've got your mind right. And instead of taking that advice, I basically quit the job.
1: Leaving the traditional nine to five world would impact Lee Grace for years to come, enabling her drug habit and driving her deeper into addiction.
3: And I went right back to dancing, because they don't care, you know, you come in at six o'clock at night, seven o'clock at night to start your shift, they're not expecting you to take a drug test. You know, they don't care if you drink, do drugs. you know, you could do whatever you want. As long as you're making the clients happy, you can be intoxicated at your job. So that allowed me to flourish as a dancer. There was no restraint. So if I wanted to be on Xanax, if I wanted to be on Roxy, I could. And that was what enabled me to support my habit.
1: Likely Gray's youngest Doherty Ryan was also having a tough time. He was living with his mom, getting in and out of trouble with the law and not going very far. Here he is, speaking with Beth Greenwald again.
6: My mother always built, like, a really strong work ethic in it. So, like, I think I got my first job when I was, like, 13 years old, 14. And then I always worked and went to school at the same time. But then I got kicked out of high school.
1: They didn't give you, like, a suspension and let you come back?
6: No. So, like, then I had to go to adult ed, and then I got my GED.
1: And what did you do after you did the
3: adult education thing?
6: I fucked around a lot. I just sold small amounts of drugs and hung out. I didn't really have that much ambition, so I just have like a hedonistic streak in me. And I like to do drugs, and I like to lay on the beach, man. I like to go surfing. I like to drive around. I like to do you know things you like to do when you're 19. Drink too much and drive too fast.
1: Ryan's brother Dylan stepped in and helped Ryan get back on track.
6: After a while, my brother told me, if you want, I'll get you a job over here. I moved to the Pepper Hills, and I hung out with my brother, and I got to know him a lot better, and then we're about five years of my life that I got to spend with my brother, so I was really grateful for that time, and... He taught me a lot about how to work on cars. He taught me how to do a lot of things with my hands. Because I was raised in a household, essentially, with all women. So, like, missing a lot of man-type of education. And that's the type of shit that I got a crash course in from him.
1: Ryan was 20 years old at this point, and not only was he doing well professionally, but his personal life was in a really happy place.
6: When my baby's mother was pregnant, I liked that whole experience. Like, she was never more beautiful to me than when she was pregnant. She got big as a goddamn beach ball. And she was the prettiest I ever seen. there. a little chubby
1: cheek. Here's Dylan again talking about Ryan.
5: He just needed an opportunity. That's all he needed was the opportunity, and I afforded him the opportunity to do better, and, and he did.
3: This call was from a federal prison.
5: Better, and he was doing, and he was doing good. He was doing the right things. He was going to work. He was being productive. He would have been taking, you know, care of his kid and with his, his girlfriend. That he was in a position to be a part of his kid's life and be a positive influence. And obviously working.
1: On August 1st, 2011, everything changed. Ryan was set to appear in court for something that happened two years prior when he was a teenager. Ryan intended on pleading no contest to two felony charges. The first, sending a minor harmful information. The second, lewd and lascivious conduct. However, when he got to court, the deal he thought he'd agreed to had changed. He explains the original agreement his lawyer presented him with.
6: My lawyer promised me, he's like, yo, when you come to court, you're going to get probation for something, and it's going to be a non-sex offender charge, and you're not going to have to register, you're going to have to do five years of probation. And I'm like, all right, bet, I'll sign up for that.
1: We're going to take a quick break here. We'll be back in a moment. Two years prior to the court appearance, Ryan had sent sexually explicit text messages back and forth with an underage girl he'd never met. He'd stayed out of trouble after that, but it was now time to face the fallout from what he'd done. On that day in court, August 1st, 2011, Ryan's lawyer informed him there was a different prosecutor and a completely different deal on the table.
6: And then I get to court. The son of a bitch is late. He's like, oh, the state attorney's changed. It's not the guy anymore. And the best deal she's willing to cut with you is 12 years for probation. And I'm like, fuck that shit. We'll crank it up and go to trial. I've already paid you almost 20 racks, which the majority of my mom paid, who could ill afford it.
1: Ryan's attorney went on to explain what going to trial would mean for him. It was an impossible choice.
6: But if you go to trial, they're going to pull your bond and put you in jail right now. Well, my son was supposed to be born 10 days from then. I do not want to miss that. Like, I don't know. I just... Bad, 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 and worse. Like, shitty option, worse option, worse option.
1: When Ryan went to court, older brother Dylan had planned to go with him, but didn't. It's something that haunts Dylan to this day.
5: It was very odd the whole way that everything unfolded and transpired. I was supposed to go to court with him that day, and I was busy. I'd have been there. Things would have happened differently. I wouldn't agree with what was happening. I probably would have told him we're going to trial. You know what I
6: mean?
1: But Ryan had to make the decision on the spot, and he chose probation.
6: I came from the courthouse immediately to the probation office. He said I did not need a monitor, and then I got to the probation office, and they were like, you need one. And I argued with the PO, and he was like, well, we can figure it out down the road, but fuck you for right now. You'll do as I say, or I'll violate you right here and now. And it's like, you're excluding me from society to the point of where how am I supposed to succeed?
1: Ryan raced home from the meeting with the parole officer to get to his house. The officer was set to do a home check shortly after their meeting, and Ryan wanted to beat him there.
6: So I'm driving my ass off, and the whole time I'm kind of, like, paranoid that they can see how fast I'm going. I'm worried. I want to get home to get the guns out of the house before they get there. Dylan was there before I got home. I just unloaded on him and told him, first of all, we squared everything with the uh, the probation and shit like that, and about court and what happened there, and I said, bro, I just can't take it anymore. I have reached a point where I just can't do it, bro.
1: The officer arrived at the house right after Ryan did. Dylan was staying there, as was Ryan's nine-month-pregnant girlfriend, Amber. Since Ryan was charged with sexually inappropriate texting with the minor, the probation officer was looking for evidence of any children in the home, which would be a violation. The crib and other preparation for the baby to come were everywhere.
6: The probation officer was like, hey, when your son is born, you can't be around him. And I'm like, well, what are you talking about? He's going to be born in 10 days. This is where she lives. Where is she supposed He's like, well, I don't know, but she can't be here. So it's like an impossible situation all the way around it. Like, what, you, what did you expect? What did you think was going to happen out of that situation that you put me in? Granted, I did, I did what I did, and I put myself in that situation. It was my fault that it got to that point. But when I'm in that point, you're not helping me. You're hurting me. You're pouring water on me while I'm in the water. I'm drowning here, and you're like, here, I have this cup of water. You look thirsty.
1: In order for Ryan to meet the requirements of his probation, he had to provide his home address. It seems like a simple ask, but it was anything but. Dylan helps explain why.
5: It really all boiled down to the address. I think in the trial it's known as the Yellow House. It doesn't actually have a street address. It doesn't have a physical address. And they're doing all these, you know, hoops and loops and why he can't provide this address while the probation officer knows that he lives there and says, oh, well, if he doesn't provide the address, then we're going to violate him. Such such. and
1: such. Ryan was given just 48 hours to officially get his home address and to have two pieces of mail delivered to him stating the address and to have that reflected on his driver's license. It was an impossibility. Here's older brother, Dylan.
5: That was the root cause because had the probation officer not said, oh, we're going to come back and, you know, we're gonna, I'm going to violate you. And it was just like, what? You know what I mean? There was no way to get an address for the place because the place didn't, the house didn't have a mailbox. The house was a part of a larger piece of property, and the house is like on the back corner of it on another street. And it didn't actually have an address. The house was just there with no address. That's why it's called the Yellow House. And, of course, the neighbor has an address, and the other house on the other side has an address. But for some reason, this house doesn't
6: have an address. And I know this sounds really weird, but that is the fact.
1: Ryan was frantic thinking about what would need to happen to fulfill his probation requirements.
6: I mean, literally, like if the probation officer would have done what I was asking him for, which is I said, hey, bro, let me get like one week because in Florida to do anything at the DMV office, you have to have your birth certificate, social security card and two forms of certified mail. You have to have all of that in order to change anything on your driver's license or do anything on your driver's license in order to step foot in the DMV. That's all provable facts. And then it's provable facts that the place that I was living, so it didn't even have a mailbox. All I had was a post office box. How long would it take to get a mailbox installed? How long would it take from then to get two forms of certified mail to the house?
1: I think everything, to some extent, was heightened. Again, they put you on probation instead of putting you in jail for a reason, but then they made it virtually impossible for you to hit the conditions of that probation, which means that you were just going to be sent to jail either way. Ryan felt completely out of options. In 48 hours, the probation officer would be back and Ryan would be arrested for violating parole. He would go to jail, leaving his nine-month-pregnant girlfriend alone to have their baby, the son he would not be able to live with. The only thing I
6: ever really, like, dreamed about that I really wanted back was to be a father. I'm not that hard to please, right? Like, I really want, like, really basic shit. Like, I, I wanted a decent house. I wanted a nice car. I wanted nice clothes. and. I wanted somebody to be able to share my life with and to have kids and to teach them better than I got taught or to just have kids and enjoy that experience to be able to give what I could to them and to be able to give something back to other people, too.
1: But more than anything, Ryan wanted to be a father.
5: It was really uh, frustrating for me to see the
6: situation. He was kind of shoehorned into, you know, pigeonholed or whatever you want to call it. And I didn't say it to him, but I thought in my head, I'm like, do I be a man? You will leave my son like a little video message. Put out all the things that I have that are of value in a bag. Walk in the woods and eat
4: a bullet.
1: Let's stop here for another quick break. We'll be back in a moment.
4: at purdueglobal.edu.
6: You know, I didn't know if I was going to do that or if I was just going to make a vicious last stand because I didn't care if it was just banging it out in the streets. I had so much...
1: This call is from a federal prison.
6: And nowhere to direct it, you know.
1: That night, Ryan concocted a plan with Dylan and older sister, Lee Grace. Ryan had his ankle monitor on and thought it might be recording him, so the three wrote notes back and forth. The plan was for Ryan to leave the very next morning and drive to Mexico. Once he crossed the border, he would call for his girlfriend and baby son so they could all be together as a family. Dylan and Lee Grace were never going to let him do it alone.
3: I was just so upset at the situation. I didn't know what we were going to do. So when I went to my brother's house, my idea was my brother's going to be on the run I'm gonna be on the run.
1: Not only did Lee Grace wanna support Ryan, but she'd recently hit rock bottom and had nothing tying her to Florida.
3: I got hired at my first club June twentieth of two thousand. So by the time 2011 came around, I had been a dancer for 11 years. I was getting really, really burnt out. I didn't want to do it anymore. I wanted to settle down. I wanted to have a family. I wanted to have a good job where I made lots of money. And I guess I didn't really know how to put all those points together.
1: Lee Grace had just broken up with her long-term boyfriend, Brendan, and was deep in her addiction.
3: I had broken up with... Brendan, we had a really bad breakup. So that sent me into a tailspin, and I was basically going from friend to friend, getting whatever prescription drugs they had, doing them, and leaving the friend's house with their prescription drugs, with or without their permission. So I had basically burned all my bridges with a lot of my friends, and I really didn't have anywhere else to go, and I was very upset that I wasn't in a good stable relationship because relationships are very very important to me especially with a significant other
1: the fresh breakup with brendan was amplified by old wounds lee grace's youngest sister erin the one she'd spent years with couch surfing as a teenager had passed away she died of the same heart disease that killed their father and the entire family but especially lee grace was left angry and adrift
3: You know, I've always had that relationship with Brendan that he has been there for me. He's seen me through so many things, the death of my sister, Erin. He's seen me lose jobs. He's seen me in in tears, hysterically crying, you know, losing my mind. And he's always been there. He's always been that type of house that I can live at, you know, the, the guy that will always take you back. So when I lost that, I just felt like I had nothing, and I just wanted to go on the run.
1: Ryan was also devastated by the loss of their sister, Erin.
6: When my sister died, that was a vicious one because, man, if you want to talk about a completely different person, that's where it felt like I developed two separate personalities that go on in my head at any given time.
1: Dylan, understandably, had a similar reaction.
6: When Aaron passed away,
5: it was like, I guess it just drove it home, that you know, you're not guaranteed tomorrow and that time with your family is important. It's not something that's going to last forever.
1: This idea of family being important above all else is what drove Dylan to join Ryan and Lee Grace on the planned escape to Mexico.
5: You know, at the time, it was what I thought was the best and most sound solution. And obviously, you know, things that we do when we're younger and maybe should have slept on the idea before you followed through with it. But, you know, those are all maybes and ifs. and. If it was the fifth, we'd all be drunk. I felt like everything was really stacked against us, you know what I mean? I'm not going to lie, I was frustrated because, you know, my brother was younger, he did a lot of dumb stuff. I just felt like it was just unfair from the start, you know? There were bad decisions made under duress, and obviously if I could go back, I would change. I would change a lot, you know, as far as what happened. But, you know, we can't change the past, not yet.
3: I think he was under so much stress that my brother, Ryan, he did not know what to do. You know, he's a young man. He was under a lot of pressure from his um, baby's mother.
6: I do remember that I was so paranoid. I thought that the ankle bracelet that I had on, you know, might be able even to pick up uh, audio. It was just a whirlwind.
5: You know, people were like, oh, what's the hardest part of the bank? You know, I was like, well, open the door and put your foot on the
6: ground.
1: More on that next time. The Doherty Gang is executive produced by Stephanie Lidecker and me, Courtney Armstrong, along with Beth Greenwald and Sean McEwen. Editing and sound design is by Jeff Twa, and additional producing by Chris Graves and Jeff Shane. The Doherty Gang is a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
5: From BBC Radio 4.
1: Zumo Play.